Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for a Tuesday edition of our podcast. Uh, our guest this week uh, was one of my favorite colleagues. Um, and if you listen to my podcast, you know I don't say that very often. He deserves a lengthy introduction, but he's got to get back to work. Uh, and I want to use our time to hear from him. So just suffice it to say, he's a United States senator from the great state of South Dakota. He's in leadership. He's on commerce and agriculture and finance, maybe others. I know of those and would be in the running for the most decent, nice person left in politics. Uh, and that would be Senator John Thune from the great state of South Dakota. Senator, welcome. How are you? Great. Great to be with you. Thank you. All right. You used to serve in the House. I know that when you look over there, you are tempted to want to go back because <laughs> it, lo- it has to look like so much fun right now. How do you, I mean, we always get out of these pickles that we find ourselves in. And usually there's no like policy change after a shutdown, just a lot of chagrinness and some back pay. But h- how do you see this ending? I hope we can keep, I hope we can avoid a, a shutdown, Trey. Um, you've been around the House days long enough, too, to deal with uh, many of these issues, and nobody wins from that. And as has been pointed out, I think almost every circumstance where we had one, we get blamed, you know, whether it's our fault or not. In many cases, it'll be the Democrats. But nevertheless, the uh, um, for, for whatever reason, we always end up taking the blame. So I just think that we, we need to figure this out. I'm hoping that... Um, you know, the House can uh, figure out a path forward and execute on, you know, sending a continuing resolution clean, whatever it looks like to the Senate. And we'll process it. And I think we can avoid it. But as you point out, it, they've got some heavy lifting ahead of them over there, because at least at the moment, it's um, they don't seem to be coming coming together behind any one approach. But I'm hopeful. But then I'm a, I'm a hopeful guy. Well, I am not known for my hopefulness. I, I am I am a cynic, uh, which is probably why I like you. Is because you are hopeful. But I, I'm I sit there and think, okay, is there any job I would less rather have in the world than Speaker of the House? And honestly, I cannot think of what it would be right now. But there is frustration. There's anger. There's disappointment among some of the electorate. So I like to look for the root causes, like the the why. And to me. Part of it goes back to early January 2021, two eminently winnable Senate races in Georgia uh, with two incumbents. And we we came up over two. And then the midterms, I think there was a lot of hope that it would be more of a red wave and it was more like a red sprinkle. So we got 2024 coming up. It looks like the map is favorable, but it all comes down to candidate selection. When you survey 2024, 
what do you see? And I, you can be as general or specific as you want to, but, but, but when you look, because you're narrowly in the minority right now, so there's not a whole lot you can do in the minority as a senator or a House member. How do you get back to the majority, and what do you see when you survey 2024? You're right, Trey. I mean, it all comes down. It starts with quality candidates. There's no substitute for that. And um, I think at least right now we're well positioned on that front. We have a, a great map in front of us, as, as you and your listeners know. Um, a third of the Senate is up every two years. So we've got uh, 33 seats up this year. Um, well, actually, I think it's 34 this year, 23 uh, Democrats and 11 Republicans. The only two Republicans who are in any kind of trouble would be an arguably, and I say use that word loosely, but, you know, Ted Cruz in Texas, they'll go after him or the Democrats will. And then Rick Scott in Florida, both are expensive states. Both incumbents are well positioned to defend their seats. But on our side, we have a lot of offensive opportunities. It's a target rich environment, starting with West Virginia, Montana, Ohio, three seats we ought to be able to get. And we only need two, as you point out, to get to the majority. So, if we can execute and, and we've got a, a candidate in a swing state, um, you know, Mike Rogers, a former colleague of yours, is going to run in, in Michigan, which obviously is a tough state, but, but it's an open seat. It's the only open seat on the map this year. If we can just hold serve in the states and the, you know, our incumbents, take care of them, and then, you know, pick off uh, two seats, we get to 51. I think the universe is much larger than that. But it's can we get candidates that are not only um, candidates who are successful in winning primaries, but also that can appeal to a general election electorate. And that was the problem we had, as you pointed out, in 2020, and for that matter, 2022. I mean, we had some candidates that just, you know, appealed to the Republican base, but in swing states in particular, the middle of the electorate is what decides these elections. And if you can't, if you don't have a way of um, being able to talk to those people, those voters, uh, you're going to have a hard time winning in those states. And this that, this this year, that's Pennsylvania, that's Wisconsin, that's Nevada, and that's Arizona, you know, and, and now maybe Michigan, depending on if that, uh, if that state becomes competitive. You're listening to the Trey Gowdy Podcast, more of my conversation with Senator John Thune right after this. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'll bet every listener I have that's never been in politics wonders this, and I've been in politics and I still wonder it a little bit. So if the Democrat, I don't know who the Democrat equivalent to Steve Daines is. Steve Daines is kind of the, I guess, candidate recruiter on the Republican side. I don't know who the Democrat equivalent is. But if he or she thought that you were vulnerable in South Dakota, they would not care how much they liked you as a person. They wouldn't care about what a nice guy John Thune was or how y'all had worked together in the past. And I guess the same is true. Looking the other side, I mean, Joe Manchin, I used to bump into him in the parking garage, really, really likable guy, fun fun to be around, talk college football. How do you balance like a personal relationship with someone, working with them, but you still want to be in the majority, and it may be their seat that you have to get? That's <laughs> a good question. Um, as you know, you do develop relationships and sometimes um, just working on through committees or a particular issue or geographic region of the country, you get to know people on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I like Joe Manchin a lot. He's a, he's a friend. Um, he's been helpful to us on many occasions. And 
Um, but his seat, yeah, could be the difference between whether or not we're in the majority or not. And the same thing is true. And like I said, in Montana, um, there are others, uh, Kirsten Sinema in Arizona as of, and she's now an independent. But what I tried to do is appeal to both people like Manchin and Cinema to try and get them to uh, join our side. And, you know, Manchin State, West Virginia, shifted a lot. It's very, very Republican. It's a red state now. Um, and he's kind of, uh, you know, if you think about um, he's the only Democrat statewide elected in, in West Virginia. Uh, same thing's true in Montana with John Tester. Same thing's true in Ohio with Sherrod Brown. At some point, your state starts moving in a direction where if you can put up a, a good, viable Republican candidate, you can win the seat. And so notwithstanding the personal relationships in this place, when it comes to politics, it really is about the majority. And um, you, you really do have to try and strike that balance. I mean, it's not like you don't, you're not friends with people anymore, but you, um, if you have a belief that your, your vision of the future uh, is a better vision of the future. And, um, and you want to, the only way you get to implement that, implement that agenda is by being in the majority. You want to fight to be in the majority. So, um, but that doesn't stop me from reaching out to some of those, some of those people you're talking to and saying, come on over to our side. You know, we've tried to recruit them. I've tried many times to get Joe Manchin to become a Republican or at least an independent that caucuses with us and made the same argument uh, to Kirsten Cinema, And, um, but, you know, we'll see. It's uh, you're right. If there is a the Democrats who I work with, if my seat was vulnerable or they thought they had a shot at, at taking me out, uh, they'd be on it. New York Minute. And, you know, for better or worse, that's kind of where this that's the way this place operates. They always say it's not personal. Right. But as we all know, everything in life is personal. <laughs> yeah. So in election years, it gets a little bit more tense around here. But um, you do your best to try and put that aside and, and when you're trying to accomplish things and where you can agree, uh, work together as much as possible. I am stunned every time I hear it or read it, but I know it's true. Not a single county in West Virginia voted for Secretary Clinton or Vice President Biden. And so you, you just wonder, I mean, at some point, that's going to catch up with anyone statewide who's in the other party. I mean, not a single county senator. That's hard to put. It's hard to, like, not win a single, like, even the West Virginia University philosophy department. You would think maybe that they might. But all right, let me ask you about something else that I need you to I need you to kind of thread this needle for me. I, I understand people that don't want the U.S. to be the world police officer. I'd like to live in a world that didn't need a police officer. I don't think that's the world we live in. It's hard for me to watch Ukraine get overrun by by a foreign country. There's this element within the party that says no more aid for Ukraine, uh, particularly in the House. I hear that more in the House than I hear it anywhere else. There's got to be a way to say we're going to be good stewards of what we send. We want accountability. We want to know how the money is being spent. So I'll, I'll give you that, the accountability, but we're going to still support Ukraine. I, I, I mean, there's a way to do both, isn't there? There is. And I think that, you know, there I, I've always said, and you want to have full transparency, visibility into how, uh, you know, resources are being used. And there's a ton of there are 20, I think, different IGs that have been looking at auditing the money that's gone to Ukraine already. Uh, who have concluded that it hasn't been they and, I, and they make it a very emphatic blanket statement that hasn't that hasn't they haven't seen any witnessed any evidence of misuse that doesn't mean it doesn't exist they just haven't seen evidence of it but nevertheless they're studying that pretty carefully 
I think at the end of the day, and I'm a, somebody who grew up in the Cold War, and Russia was somebody, you know, that uh, it was like that was the adversary, that was the enemy. And, and unfortunately, that hasn't changed. And that's very clear by their invasion of a sovereign nation uh, in the case of Ukraine. Um, but I do think, uh, Trey, that if, you know, people around the country, and I know some of them are very leery of more uh, investment there, um, but it really is kind of uh, almost in a way, if you think about it, um, it's a path where we're putting resources in there, weaponry, technology, training, that sort of thing. We're not putting men and women in there. And if they succeed in Ukraine, the next country is a NATO ally. And that triggers Article 5 of our treaty. And, and that means we are going to have to put men and women in uniform in harm's way. So I'm a big believer um, in kind of the Reagan doctrine, which was implemented back when he was president. And then when that happened in Afghanistan, we supported the Mujahideen and in the Contras in Nicaragua. And people can argue about how the outcomes or results of that. But, but we didn't have American men and women in uniform there. Um, we helped the resistance fight their battles. And that's what we're doing in Ukraine. And I think there's broad support in the country for seeing Ukraine succeed. Um, and I know in our conference, at least, we have a lot of people who are very support, uh, you know, supportive of investing in a strong national defense of reinforcing NATO and, uh, and supporting Ukraine's defense needs and ultimately, hopefully, their success. But it is a, um, you know, these are, it's a dangerous world. All you do is pick up a newspaper or turn on the television to realize that that's true. And there are so many countries that are watching what's happening there, uh, particularly China and um, and with respect to what they might do in Taiwan. And I think uh, the U.S.'s leadership is looked to. Uh, I think we need to get more support out of our European allies and make sure that the dollars we're putting in there are spent wisely and well and not wasted and not um, misused. But I, I do think we have a lot at stake in Ukraine's success when it comes to the peace and security of, of the world as we know it. I got one more general question and then two John Thune specific questions. And then I'm going to let you go back to doing your job and I'm going to go back to doing next to nothing, which is my new job. All right. <laughs> my mom wanted, wanted to go celebrate her birthday and she, she gets to pick the restaurant. And this particular restaurant required me to wear a coat and tie. I, I had to go find them. I didn't, I don't know what I've done with them. I, I, don't, I don't wear them anymore. But I did because, number one, it was my mom, and number two, that's what the restaurant required. I mean, we kind of know ahead of time. I mean, if you're going to go to this event, this is the dress code. If you're going to go to that event, that's the dress code. I mean, I'm not like – I don't want to sound old-fashioned, but there, there's a debate going on in Washington about dress code on the Senate floor. And look. People who live in glass houses can't throw stones. I mean, I got a, I got a senator. I'll, I'll tell you right now, you spent more on your coffee this morning than he spends on his suits, and that would be my senior senator, Lindsey Graham. But it is a suit. And then you got Mark Wayne Mullen. I didn't know you could have a fully polyester suit. I thought there had to be like a little bit of cotton or rayon in it. But Mark Wayne convinced me you can. So it doesn't even have to be like a – like a beautiful suit. It just has to be a suit. How do you fall down on the dress code? A, a little bit old fashioned on that. And by the way, when you were here, you were a sharp dressed man, as I recall. 
um, in your uh, sartorial taste. But um, yeah, I mean, I just think there are certain places and expectations and you want to, you want to raise the bar, not lower it. And I think too much in, in the country today, we keep lowering the bar. We kind of have this almost race toward mediocrity and you see it in so many different areas of our, of our culture today. And that's not like I'm prudish about this. I mean, I, I'm somebody who likes to get relaxed and dress casual when I can too, but um, you know, there are certain standards that we've always had in places like the Senate. When people come to Washington, I think they have expectations about, you know, raising their game a little bit if they're making visits to congressional offices. So, um, you know, I, I, again, I think there, you, you got to have a little bit of flexibility. Times change and clearly, um, through the years, uh, the standards in terms of dress codes have evolved a little bit, but I still think that there are certain um, places that we just want to hold up in our country as kind of models of where we still have a commitment to professionalism and excellence. And um, so, I'm, yeah, like I said, I, I'm probably still with the, the coat and tie. Now, Mark Wayne is uh, very, uh, I think, will be very happy if he doesn't have to wear a tie on the floor. <laughs> and we've got a few others like that, too. But I think if you dumb it down too much, um, it, then, it, then it becomes, um, I think it sort of loses that uh, uniqueness uh, um, about some of these institutions. And I, I want to maintain and retain, I hope at least, the uh, when people come here and they see these buildings and they see the, the functioning of their government, that they're a little bit, hopefully, I don't know, odd's not the right word, but respectful about it and, uh, and just realize that uh, uh, this is a country that is unique and special. Um, we want to reflect that in every way, including how we, how we conduct ourselves. Uh, that's beautifully said. I think respect is exactly the right word. I am sure Supreme Court justices don't want to wear black robes, but the tradition is that they do. And um, and there's a uniformity. And I just think wearing a coat and tie and look, Mark Wayne, they make clip ons. I mean, I've seen him <laughs> try to tie a tie. I thought he was doing like a Rubik's Cube trying to tie a tie. It took him quite a while, but they do make clip ons. But all right, I got two John Thune questions and I'm reading between the lines. I got no inside knowledge at all. But it looked like you were struggling with whether or not to run for reelection. It just looked like you we're thinking about, okay, maybe I'm going to spend more time in South Dakota. I mean, you have a beautiful state, but it's not easy to get there from Washington. Uh, at least it wasn't back when I was trying to get to, to Sioux Falls or wherever I flew into. Did you like wrestle with it, and why did you ultimately decide, yeah, I'll go ahead and do it? Uh, it wasn't easy, Trey. And, you know, you've been down, you make a decision, you consult with your family, um, and uh, – you know, you weigh it and you want to, if you're somebody who does this, but I think hopefully for the right reasons, you want to, you want to be a difference maker, you know, and I've always kind of been somebody who is, um, I hopefully uh, somewhat purpose driven in that you want to take the, your God given abilities and put them to their highest and best use, um, in, in, in areas where you can serve. And I felt like this is a place where you can make a difference, but I also had gotten to the point where, you start to um, say, I've been here. Have I done everything I can do? You know, and then you start weighing the sort of the personal part of it. And that is, as you point out, I mean, I, I sit down and look at it. If Congress is in session 35 to 40 weeks a year, um, that means that's four flights a week uh, to get back and forth from South Dakota, not to mention the travel that you do on other things, political travel, et cetera. 
you start, uh, you know, spreading that over out over a, you know, a six year term, that's about a thousand, thousand planes you're going to get on. And when you're six, five, uh, that's not an easy thing or sitting in airports a lot, but that's, you know, that's what you sign up to do. And in the end, it came down to really, um, you know, my wife and I, and, and, uh, very prayerfully, uh, just trying to figure out where we thought we could serve and make the biggest difference. And, um, and I think this is, uh, what we concluded. There's still opportunity to do some things here and hopefully, uh, some, some, you know, some doors will open along the way and, and, and maybe that happened before that we can uh, step up and, and provide leadership for our country and for our party and uh, for our team here in the Senate. Stay right there. More of this conversation with Senator John Thune is coming up. I'm going to let you go with this, and I know that you are tired of talking about it, but I am not tired of hearing about it because it's really, really rare. The first time I ever heard your name was from my father. You had run against an incumbent U.S. senator in South Dakota, and it was maybe the closest race that I'd ever heard of before at that level. I mean, it was maybe even in the hundreds of votes difference. And my dad was struck by the fact that you had the right to a recount, but you didn't want to put your state through it. And I contrast that now with yeah, I mean, there are people in politics now who say it is impossible for them to lose. I mean, even though Jesus lost to Barabbas, it is impossible for them to lose. And you had the right to contest a U.S. Senate seat, and you did not do it. So I'm going to let you, and I like I said, I know you're tired of talking about it, but I'm not tired of hearing about it because that's not like that's not where politics is this day and age. They don't say, yeah, I have the right to do it, but I'm not going to put my state through it. So tell us that story for those who are not familiar with it. Your first run for U.S. Senate. The first one uh, didn't turn out so well. They were both both close races, the first one and the second one. I always tell young people that, you know, I ran two statewide races and that were decided by a total of about 5,000 votes. And to, to make the point that every vote matters. But yeah, the first one was 524 votes. Um, I came up a little short. And yes, we had, there were, as there oftentimes are, allegations of irregularities, and we took a look at it. But in the end, um, I concluded, Trey, that uh, if it was supposed to have happened, it would have happened. And I, again, that's partly maybe just a, the sense of uh, assurance I have, my, my faith that these things that, you know, we trust. Uh, uh, the Lord in, in circumstances like that um, to open doors. If a door was supposed to open, I was supposed to exceed it. I just felt like it would have happened. And, and um, that the message was to live to fight another day. And so, you know, it, uh, I, I thought I'd taken my shot. I wasn't going to run again. And um, I kept getting encouragement. So two years later, we took another shot at it. And, and this time I instead of losing by 524 votes, won by 4,518 votes. So, they were both close races, very hotly contested, very expensive, but we felt like uh, my wife and I did, especially having lost the first one. I remember, I remember um, having a conversation in our living room and her saying, this is shortly after the election loss, saying, you know, I am not going through another election, another campaign, unless God himself comes to the door and says you have to run. But it's interesting, over time, several months later, we were having a similar conversation in our living room and she, she, you know, she said, you know, I finally concluded that uh, about the race last year um, and the way that it turned out, that it's not about the winning, but about the race. 
and um, which I thought was interesting because I know I was about to win. <laughs> You're a competitive person, but I think she hit on something there, and that is, you know, we were in the arena. Uh, it didn't work out that time, but you know, we stayed at it and the next time got a different outcome. So it's, um, these races are all different, but if you have a, a, a sort of a assurance and confidence as a person of faith that, um, you know, the good Lord is sovereign in the affairs of mankind, it, uh, it makes accepting some of these outcomes a lot easier. All right. I'll get this wrong, but I think you may have run against a doctor named Johnson the first time. And, and maybe he had a health issue during the campaign or or maybe after I, I'll, I'll get it wrong. And then you I think you beat Tom Daschle the second time, right? Yeah. The second time was was uh, was Tom Daschle. And he at that time was a Democrat leader in the Senate. That was arguably a, a much harder race than the first one. Uh, and I remember when we, we looked at it. We had the, the family uh, vote on whether to run again the second time against Tom Daschle after having lost against Tim Johnson. Um, we sat around the kitchen table and uh, kind of put it to a family vote. I have two daughters, and they were at that time in high school. And um, we made it a secret ballot so everybody could vote their conscience. And the vote came back three to one in favor of running, and I was the no vote. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't really want to go through it again, but I knew that if my wife and my family was committed to to, to doing it again, that, um, you know, it kind of freed us up to, to take another shot. And um, it was a very, very hard-fought uh, campaign. And, um, but, you know, I'm grateful that uh, to have the good support of a lot of people in my state and around the country who invested in that race, and we were fortunate to come out on top. But it was a, another narrow outcome. And at the time I ran the, the uh, in 2004, I always tell people this, we didn't have a single elected Republican in Congress from North or South Dakota. We were 0-6, and, and you served with some of the House members uh, back in the day. But, you know, over a period of time, uh, we flipped them all. We went from 0-6 to 6-0. and 0. So it's, uh, and, and those are, you know, it's, those are states that should have been electing conservatives and Republicans to Congress. And we finally got that turned around, but, for a long time, that wasn't the case. So uh, you just got to keep grinding. You mentioned talking to the young people. I know I said I was I was done, but I'm going to ask the court if I can just let you go with one more question. You mentioned young people. You talked to them about the closeness of the race. If I were to go talk to young people, I would say it is such a difficult, mean-spirited, when-at-all-cost line of work. Are you sure you want to do it? And And I think about the exceptions. I think Tim Scott is an exception. Tim Scott's an extremely good guy who happens to be in politics. James Langford from Oklahoma, another colleague of mine. But so are you. And so I'm wondering if a young person says, you know, listening in South Dakota, look, I would like to I'd like to be in the House. I'd like to be in the Senate from South Dakota. But I want to be a nice guy. I want to be a decent person like John Thune. I mean, is that this seems like a tough environment for people like you and Tim and James Langford, or maybe I'm looking at it wrong. Well, um, I hope, at least in the case of Tim Scott, that, that he finds favor with people in Iowa and New Hampshire and other places, because he is. He's a quality a human being, uh, a, an individual of character, and brings to our, our political debates and discussions a temperament and a tone that is hopeful and optimistic and positive and aspirational and all the things that I think politics ought to be about. And for young people, it is hard because they look at it. And there's a lot of cynicism out there. 
And I've always believed that, you know, politics ought to be about appealing to people's hopes, not preying on their fears. And too much of politics today is about grievance and, and fear and division. Um, and so, I, you know, I've endorsed Tim Scott for president because I think he's the kind of leader that will take us in a different direction. And for young people, you know, I, I encourage them to, um, again, it's not for everybody. This, this, and it's a line of work that you, you got to get used to getting shot at, and especially in the era of social media. And too many young people today are so addicted to their social media platforms and who likes them and who doesn't like them and you know, all that sort of thing. I tell them to quit looking down and look up and look around. I mean, look at the difference you can make. Um, and if a door opens that you weren't planning on, you know, if you're going down a certain vocation in life or career or path, uh, and a door opens a little bit, don't be afraid to push it open and see what's on the other side. Cause that was certainly my experience as a young person. I met a politician when I was a freshman in high school and it sort of changed my trajectory. Um, and, uh, and later after grad school, got a chance to, to work for that person, uh, in Congress and had it not been for that, I'm certain I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. So sometimes, um, doors open, don't be afraid to push them open. But I always tell young people, whatever you do, whatever you choose to do locationally, whatever you choose to do in, in, in terms of your career um, or not even related to your career, just be difference makers. You know, be people who are willing to serve causes that are greater than yourself, because in the end, um, you know, when all the, the looks and charm are gone, all that's left is character. And, and it's what you've done to, to make the world around you a better place. And. Um, so I, I really try and to, to the degree that I can encourage people and to be positive, to be, you know, uh, outward looking and not to be so obsessed with, um, kind of our own state of affairs, but looking at what you can do to make a difference with the people around you. You've been listening to Senator John Thune. If you did not already know it, now you can tell he is one of the more decent people that you will find in a difficult line of work. Um, Senator, thank you so much for joining us and uh, look forward to visiting with you again. I won't ask you to tell the same stories. I know you're a modest <laughs> guy. We're going to talk about basketball at Biola or your latest, you know, five mile run that you used to do all the time. I guess you still do. We'll talk about something else other than your narrow, uh, narrow runs for the Senate where you did not contest the outcome. But yeah. John Thune, thank you so much for your time. Trey, good to be with you. We miss you up here, brother. <laughs> thank you. Best to uh, you. Thank you all for listening to us. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.